Hey folks, it's Marvin Cash, the host of The Articulate Fly, and we're back with the final episode of Ninthing Essentials with Jason Randall, our Q&A session. Jason, how are you doing? I'm doing really good, Marvin. How you doing? I'm just trying to stay out of trouble, and uh, maybe a mule awaits me at the end of our recording session. <laughs> Marvin, every time I ask you how you're doing, you always say, I'm trying to stay out of trouble. You must get in a lot of trouble. There must be a confession here. Yeah, it's a perpetual state of aspiration, Jason. <laughs> oh, man. I think you're there. Uh, there you go. And so, you know, before we kind of drop in, and first of all, I want to thank everyone. We had a ton of questions, um, and uh, we tried to use as many as we could, but obviously we couldn't use everyone's question, but we super appreciate everyone that sent a question in. And kind of before we kind of dive into the Q&A stuff, you want to kind of, Jason, kind of recap the kind of the three areas that we've covered, and maybe folks, if they want to look at one of those, they can go back and uh, listen to one of the old episodes. Yeah, you bet. We've defined in the course of this podcast and in uh, also the content that that I enjoy teaching, we we know that there are three main objectives that we have to reach to be successful nymph anglers. First and foremost, we've got to get our flies to the level where the trout are feeding, and we call that the strike zone. Now, the strike zone is different in fast water compared to slow water. In fast water, it's going to be compressed to the bottom. In slow water, it may open up um, from top to bottom, um, and that that dictates our, our nymphing style. It also dictates our rigging style. The second objective that we have to uh, achieve is to get a good presentation. That means that we need to get our drift speed appropriate to the speed of the strike zone, especially in, in medium and faster water where that uh, strike zone is compressed at the bottom. We know that it's also moving at half speed relative to the current that goes overhead. So slowing that drift down um, and getting an appropriate drift speed is going to give us the best presentation for the for a dead drift. And then the third objective that we have to get is having a better means of strike detection. We know that um, flotation devices and large plastic indicators are letting us down. Most anglers are aware that they're missing more fish than they're creating. And uh, getting a, an improved method, a more accurate method of strike detection is that third objective. If we meet those three objectives, we're going to have more success as nymph anglers. Yeah, and it's a perfect segue into Russell's question. And his question for us is, how does Euro-nymphing help us improve success in those three areas? Well, it's probably the most effective method to reach those three goals. And so it's going to give us the best chance um, of, 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 I think, catching fish uh, the most success when it's, when it's appropriate. Now, not every stretch of water is suitable for Euronymphing, but because it does cut through surface uh, overhead currents um, and allow our flies to track in the strike zone at the appropriate speed, and it also gives us a very direct linear connection to those flies, it really does reach those three objectives um, more easily, I think, with fewer corrections than most other methods of nymph angling. Yeah, and that tension in that rig is what makes the strike detection so much better, right? Correct. And the, and the whole mantra now in Euro-nymphing is, is thin to win, and what that allows um, us to do 
we can cut through those surface currents more effectively with a thinner um, tippet material, allowing us to maintain contact and achieve drift speed with less weight in our flies, which is a more natural situation as well. So once again, that direct linear connection, contact nymphing, uh, really allows us to have accurate strike, strike detection as well. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I mean, when you start playing around with 6 and 7X, it's amazing how little weight you need and like a pertagon to get it to drop like a stone. You're right, Marvin. That's true. And, and that brings us to flies and fly design, too. We're seeing flies that are drag-busting flies. They sink quickly like pertagons. They get to the strike zone. They stay there, um, cutting through the current with those microliters. And new concepts in fly design has really improved our nymphing success as well. Yeah. And, you know, Tay had a follow-up question and wanted to know, you know, if you want to do euro-nymphing, do you need to run out and buy, a, you know, an 11-foot euro-nymphing rod? Or, you know, can they, you know use a nine foot five weight? Well, you know, I have to probably say my preferred your nymphing rod is only 10 feet, <laughs> but you know, you can, you can use any rod that you have. I think it's, it's, uh, you know, certainly there'll, so, there'll be some limitations to shorter rods as far as reach and, um, and, uh, drift management and some things like that. The sensitivity of your nymphing rods is specifically designed to, you know, to really perform in Euronymphing, whereas other rods may may be less uh, adaptable, less suitable to that. But certainly, you can use any rod, and and as as you experiment with this technique and get used to it, um, I think using whatever you have is important. But I think more important, um, if you're going to uh, get into this, is maybe just getting a good leader um, that has, you know, the, the characteristics that we need to, to achieve those three goals more effectively. Yeah. Do you have a, a favorite leader flavor? I mean, I know when I started out, I think I took, you know, Devin Olson back in the day had the, basically the thin, thinner, thinnest system with the Maxima chameleon. And uh, right. that was kind of what I started with. And, you know, what he basically said was, you know, if you're using a shorter, you kind of quote, non-euro-nymphing rod, you'd basically just chop that leader down and not have as much uh, butt maxima. But, you know, do you have a favorite go-to leader now? Because I know companies are making basically pre-made euro-nymphing leaders. I do. And and certainly there's a lot of commercial, um, you know, commercially produced leaders that are very, very good. But I think the key characteristics that you need to look for in whether you make your own or whether you buy one commercially available is uh, is just um, getting that, um, you know, that fluorocarbon, whatever is going to be in the water or underwater. To be level and thin, um, I've reduced the amount of, of different components or size changes in my leader. It's very simple. Um, it is some type of an upper leader material, um, which could be even cider material um, that you can get commercially from scientific anglers that you can go down from your fly line to a tippet ring. And then below the tippet ring, I'm usually using scientific anglers, uh, 6X or 7X fluorocarbon. And oftentimes I'm putting a, a, a marker somewhere in that fluorocarbon to serve as a cider marker could be scafars or it could be a dry application paint um something along those lines but my leaders are a lot more simple than they used to be um and i think um you know i think 
the main thing to consider um, is reducing the number of knots that have to come in and out of your guides in your rod because knots that snag could mean missed fish. But it also, at the end of every drift, you have to recast. And if you're casting out a lot of knots that are catching in your guides and you're constantly shaking out your leader for the next cast, and I want that just to flow out easily to shoot out um, and and uh, and put me right back in the water again. So. That's my main philosophy is simple and thin, I think, is uh, is uh, the uh, uh, most important thing. Yeah, and we're talking about using fluoro, uh, right, because it's stronger kind of by diameter. It's really abrasion resistant, and it's also has an index of refraction, right, that's closer to water. So there's no shimmer for the fish to see in the water column, right? Yep, I think all those things are true. Yeah, and you mentioned the scafar, uh, and just for folks that don't know, that's um, it's like chapsticks with different colors of wax, right? And uh, right, you just wax your leader with it and keep it in your shirt pocket. Don't leave it in your car because it'll melt. I've done it, so uh, <laughs> don't leave it on the dash. Yeah, and so, but I think you can get it in all. I think you can get it in like hot pink, yellow, white. White, interestingly enough, is a really good contrast color too. So, um, if you have questions about that, folks, just hit us up and. You know, the next kind of set of questions, Jason, there were, we got quite a few rigging questions. And I would right. say they talk about um, kind of, I guess, several flavors of ice cream. And I'll just kind of lay them all out together and we can kind of pick them apart. You know, one is, you know, how do you like to attach your droppers? Uh, and I think that's talking about, um, you know, knots. And then I think the other one is really... Uh, location of flies on a rig in terms of like, where do you put the heavy fly? Where do you put the lighter flies? So you want to kind of start digging into that? You bet. Let's just start at the top though and and talk about when to use one fly rigs and when to use two fly rigs. I use probably 50-50, one, one fly versus two fly. When there is complexity to the current, a lot of different small seams Pocket water, anytime it's really hard to get two flies to drift in the same currency seam at the same speed, I'll use one fly. Um, pocket water is a classic example. That's a crisscross of different currents and going in different directions every few inches below, um, you know, below the surface. And having one fly going one direction, another fly going another direction is really, um, is really counterproductive to getting a good drift for either fly. So in those situations where there's a lot of complexity to the current or crisscross, crisscrossing currents or variation in currents, I'll use one fly. When I'm using two flies, there, there may be more uniformity to flow, um, and uh, and it's easier for us to get both flies uh, drifting in the, at the same speed. What I'll do then, my rigging when I'm using two flies is all based on understanding um, the nature of the strike zone. So in fast water, when that strike zone is compressed to the very bottom, maybe the bottom 20% of the vertical water column, I want both flies to be beneath that layer that separates that 20%. And so typically, and again, this goes back to some of the earlier uh, Czech and Polish systems of nymph fishing, I will usually put a heavier fly in the upper dropper position and then i'll trail a less weighted fly because that heavier fly will then carry both flies below um, that uh, slip seam that separates the strike zone from the faster water overhead 
And that way I know that I have both flies in the strike zone because if I'm tight um, or I have tension to my heavier fly, that heavier fly being the upper dropper um, cuts through the current and allows that for that uh, point fly then that is slightly less weighted to be in the strike zone as well. If I rigged the opposite way in fast water um, with my heaviest fly as my point fly and I'm tight to that or tense to that fly, that means my upper dropper is in mid current facing the fastest water and fish may be less likely to come up through that heavy current to take that um, that uh, dropper. So that's my rigging for fast water. Um, the anchor fly or my heavier of the two flies would be in the dropper position. And that's done from, oh, you can, uh, you can attach it several different ways. Uh, you can do an overhand uh, double or triple surgeon's knot. You can do a blood knot with one um, tag shorter and the point fly longer. Uh, the point fly may be anywhere between 15 and 20 inches is typical. Um, you can use a tippet ring there as well. And so um, I don't do a linear connection where the flies are attached um, to the preceding fly, either at the hook shank or the eye of the hook. Um, all my flies that I'm fishing would be you know, free and unrestricted with no other point of attachment. Um, now, when I rig for slower water, uh, understanding the nature of the strike zone, again, knowing that as that water slows to medium and slower speeds, that strike zone open up, opens up. And so covering um, that strike zone with my fly position becomes important. And knowing that they will feed um, in mid-current and slower water, my point fly then becomes my heavier of the two flies. My upper dropper would be slightly uh, weighted or unweighted. And again, during the drift or presentation, I'm going to be tense to that heavier fly, which means my upper dropper will be pulled up into mid-current, which is okay because that is, you know, that is covering the strike zone. And interesting enough, some you know uh, some new ideas and innovations of this you know, have have really discussed. Dave Whitlock was key on this as putting not only um, you know the right weight in different positions, but also putting the right life stage in different positions. So you would take a a caddis um, larva in in with a heavier weight, put it on the point fly. Then you would put an intermediate emerger then as that dropper so that it looks like the larva at the bottom then is in the act of emerging and, and coming up through the column to go to the surface. So kind of cool, um, putting the right life stage at the right depth and then uh, also uh, weighting the flies accordingly. Yeah. And so one quick question there. So do you like, um, are you tying like a knot that's snug to the eye of your flies or do you like a loop knot on your flies? Most of the time uh, I'm tying uh, a 1620 knot um, to my flies. I like that knot because it's easy to tie. I can even tie it with a six and seven X smaller material um, that can sometimes challenge uh, my, my eyes and fingers at this age. I can usually tie that knot pretty proficiently, but the thing I like about it is that it's got great knot security, but it literally disappears. It's such a small profile knot that even on small flies like size 16, 18s, and 20s, 
it doesn't dominate the fly itself, whereas maybe a improved clinch or something like that, that looks like a hangman's noose. When I tie it to a really, really small fly, I really just see the knot. Yeah, you've added 50% to the length of the fly, right? <laughs> right. Yeah. And so, Jason, I have a question from Jason really kind of around all things fly selection and kind of wanted to get your thoughts on styles of fly as well as kind of the natural versus the attractor angle of that as well. Sure, you bet. Well, I think it's it's important uh, when there is a large-scale insect activity to match the hatch and, and, or at least, um, you know, use that basic philosophy. But when we're nymph fishing, usually it's because there is no specific event that would normally tighten the trout's feeding focus to maybe only one single prey um, selection. And so when we're nymph fishing, the, the fish themselves uh, might be feeding on a wide variety of different food types drifting in the, in the stream at that point. And so I think our fly selection is a lot broader. And that's why I think particularly in nymph fishing that um, presentation trumps fly selection. I think um, you'll catch more fish with the, with the uh, right presentation of the wrong fly than you will uh, choosing the very best fly but pre- presenting it poorly. And so I think it's more how we present it than, than the fly we choose. So as a result, um, more of my flies are, are maybe suggestive rather than imitative. Uh, attractive patterns um, in, in impressionistic flies are much more common. I like hot spots in them. I like paradigons. I like, I, if I look and open up my fly box, I probably only have of my commonly used nymphs, maybe six or eight patterns, but they're all organized by different depths. I change flies more for, for weight to achieve goal number one than I do for changing it to a different species. So a lot of my flies are you know, attractors and, and um, you know, something that would you know, maybe be more suggestive than strictly imitative. Yeah. And to kind of help folks with that on that organization thing, because I think that's a big deal, right? Because the less time you spend rummaging around in your gear, the more time you can fish. Do you organize and do you know kind of the weights because you're looking at the size of the bead? Um, or I know like some people will put a different color thread collar to basically denote either, you know, flies that have lead in the body as well as a bead or different, um, different weights. I've heard that too. I'm not probably that organized. Um, yeah, mine is a, it's just kind of organized, um, by rows and I put, um, you know, I do have a lot of lead underbody since a lot of these flies, um, you know, just to give me that little extra when I need it. Um, but yeah, mine, mine are more or less organized that way. And, and, uh, I typically only have a, a handful of, of patterns. Um, but Again, I think it's more important yeah, how we present that fly. And I, back to that original question of why does Euronymphing work? Uh, because it does give me control over that presentation of those flies. Um, you know, if, if, if I'm not getting a, a good response on a dead drift, I'll try, because of the short range usually involved in Euronymphing, I'll try to add a little bit of jig animation. I'll try to swing it out and let it rise like an emerging insect. There's so much that you can do in presentation that I think, um, I, I think we really need to focus on that. 
Yeah. It's interesting too. It flows really well into Patrick's question, which was basically, you know, how to determine, you know, what style of nymphing is appropriate and kind of, is there a good rule of thumb to think about, you know, when to indicator nymph and when to tightline or urinymph? Sure. I'm, I'm a big believer in reading the water, not only for, you know, the information that we get for where to fish, but it's also going to tell you how to fish. Because in reading the water, it's going to tell you what method of, uh, you were talking about nymph fishing, so what method of nymph fishing would be most suitable for that water type. Where I might use a flotation device is uh, maybe there's just a situation I'm facing on the river where I cannot get close enough to where I want to establish a drift. Maybe that's deeper water, faster water. I can't wade close enough to do a shorter range technique like Euro nymphing or high sticking. And maybe I'm 40 feet away in pretty swift water. I want to put my fly over on the far bank. And so I'll choose some type of a flotation device, maybe a small plastic indicator to establish that drift further from my position or also from a drift boat. So those are the criteria that I usually would um, would uh, in that situation, I would usually choose some type of a rotation device. If I'm fishing in fast water where I can get proximity, I'm always going to use some type of a, of a high sticking or euro-nymphing, some type of a uh, direct tension um, type of, of nymph fishing, because that's really suited uh, for fast water. I can pierce those faster layers of current get a good drift in the strike zone. I can get close to those fish because we call those lies high confident lies because those fish that are beneath that heavy thick water, maybe it's it's broken and choppy, maybe it's opaque, maybe it's darker water where where you can get right on top of fish in order to do those techniques. That's a high confident lie because fish have a high confidence in their safety and security while feeding in that lie. But if I'm looking at a situation where it's a low confidence situation where maybe it's lower water, lower water, gin clear water, um, and those trout are spooky and anxious, that's a low confidence situation. Those trout will will flee for cover at the slightest threat. Even a, a small bird overhead is enough to send them running for cover. And so in that situation, the water tells me, okay, I can't get, I'm not going to splash a big plastic indicator on them. They'll flee for cover with that too. I can't get close enough to do a, a, a check style or short range euro nymphing. I got to back up and respect their anxiety in that low confident position. So that's where I'll use longer leaders, lighter flies. I'll use a long range nymphing technique, um, or I'll put on a small tuft of yarn, like a New Zealand indicator that lands very gently on the water. So everything would be geared in that situation to respecting um, the trout's anxiety and their spookiness on those low confident lies. Yeah. And the great thing too, you know, with the urinimping rig, you know, to your point is you can float it, right? And then you don't have to change stuff around because then when you go back to a more traditional tight line presentation, you're just lifting all that stuff off the water. Yep, that's right. And we're looking at some new products um, that uh, have different float characteristics and leader design. I mean, there's more change and more change coming in this part of our sport than than I can think of uh, in any other area. But we're looking at floating those ciders if you're euro-nymphing or greasing them up with some type of a 
pellet paste or other water repellents and using smaller flies so that we can kind of suspend them, kind of like we used to do with midge fishing 20 years ago with uh, two pinch-on foam indicators uh, where we would kind of just suspend those smaller flies um, at different depths in the water column from greater distance. And again, in that situation, Strike Zone tells us how to rig. It's okay for us to have our flies at mid-depth in the water column. Um, and so uh, those techniques are ideally suited for, for that. Yeah, which kind of flows really well. Tyler's got a great question, you know, and it's kind of um, trying to reconcile kind of two schools of thought, uh, uro-nymphing. And so one of them, you know, he's been told, you know, you kind of swing the flies into place. So, you know, you've got slack at the beginning and you kind of come tight. And I think we actually talked about that in an earlier episode where you would literally kind of – you know, things would be moving along and then all of a sudden the cider would slow down, right? And you knew you were down comparing that. Right. Yeah, comparing that with, you know, being told you want to be tight instantaneously because you don't want to miss any strikes. And so you you cast, you almost immediately begin leading the flies. And he kind of wanted to get your thoughts on kind of what's the best way to get to the right depth and to get in the zone without losing out on those early strikes. <laughs> well, there's a lot of layers to that question <laughs> and a lot of layers to the answer then, too. Um, but controlled descent. We don't want to just have a complete free fall to our flies where we have so much slack that we're missing fish on the way down. So an uncontrolled descent is not what we're hoping to achieve. But we don't want so much tension um, that we're impeding the descent or that we're many times we find ourselves leading the drift in and uh, and actually pulling the flies which impedes their descent so we never do reach goals one or two so learning how to do a tuck cast um, even from long range you can still get that uh, to kind of arc over to allow those flies to uh, begin descending before the actual downstream drift begins and so I guess the simplest answer to that would be a controlled descent where we do have some um, connectivity to the flies, but we haven't completely lost, um, you know, uh, or restricted the drift uh, of those, of those, uh, of those flies so that we've, we've kept them from getting to the bottom. So I think a lot of people have, have, uh, have, you know, made adjustments to that tuck cast. Some people kind of extend the arm at the end of that cast to kind of turn those flies downward. Some people will just give it a slight flick of the rod upward at the end of the cast to kind of, again, to loop and arc those flies down so that we can achieve that controlled descent. Because if we really just start leading our flies right after it and we have maximum tension, we're never going to let those flies really descend to the strike zone. Yeah. And we can also cheat a little bit too, right? And we can cast upstream of where we think the strike zone really is. And it gives us a little bit of a cushion while we're trying to figure everything out, right? Yeah, and that's kind of like a tiered um, drop situation. We call it a tiered drop because, you know, that we're looking at it by tiers of the water column and and the drop of our flies. And so you can kind of estimate. Um, so if you're casting to a fish, say that's in two and a half feet of water, and you cast two feet above it. Um, yeah, the next cast might be three feet above it so that our flies will reach a different tier of depth um, as they pass over that trout. So again, kind of tiering down through the water column by uh, reaching out a little bit further in front of that fish or by giving it a little sharper tuck 
to um, to get a quicker descent of those slides is definitely a way, uh, especially for pre-spotted fish. And when I when I, I get to fish with with so many great anglers, and I'm I'm so blessed to um, you know to, to to be able to do that. But I see so many different um, uh, techniques like that, where um, pre-spotting fish, they know the fish is there. Uh, that first cast, maybe they didn't get um, any reaction from the trout. They'll make a um, trying to make that next drift uh, maybe six inches deeper, and then next drift after that six inches deeper. Yeah, and then uh, we got our our final question from Mac, and he wanted to basically get your thoughts on you know if you're fishing uh, where the stream depth is changing pretty consistently. Um, you know, what is the best way to make sure your flies are always at the right depth? Well, that the most important thing that we can do is a thing that sometimes we often overlook, and that's troubleshooting our drift. Uh, if we catch a fish, obviously the trout are the judge and jury about the quality of our drift. But even when we're not, um, you know, catching fish on every drift, we can still decide and 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 evaluate and and analyze that drift and know that we've reached those three objectives because we can see um, by the the drift speed is probably the most accurate um, tell as far as how um, how effectively we met those first two goals because if if our flies slow down they cause because they've reached the strike zone where it's moving slower they cause the uh, drift to move slower it's not something that we're doing as an angler on the other end of the of the rod, but it's the flies that, that slow the drift. Once the drift slows, well, then you know your flies are tracking in the strike zone at the appropriate speed. And um, that's troubleshooting the drift is something that we should do with every every cast and presentation we make. Yeah, and so I guess for a visual cue, right, we're really kind of talking about if we know that the water on the bottom is a fraction of the speed of the water at top. You want to see that cider moving slower than, say, bubbles or leaves or things like that on the top of the water, right? That's correct. But we can we can not only use it for euro nymphing with the cider, but we can also use it for other forms of nymph fishing as well. Uh, we can we can get that um, information from flotation devices or suspension devices as well knowing that they're giving us um, you know a quality drift we get the same feedback not just from watching a cider but say from the New Zealand strike indicator it's telling you um, by its characteristics when it when it when it stands up right in the water um, it tells you you have contact to your flies when when it starts to slow down very slightly it tells you that your flies are in the strike zone moving at the appropriate speed so and then when we're using larger plastic devices that are less readable well you know, we have to make some adjustments there too. If we choose a smaller plastic device, we're using enough weight to balance that rig out. We can still see, I can usually see that flotation device will settle a little deeper um, in the water on the surface. It'll slow a little bit. So I can get some readability to it. But even with that, what I can do is I can just throw men's in it. Um, and I'm not talking about men's between me and the strike indicator. 
I'm talking about men's between the strike indicator and the flies, which means that if I'm going to mend my strike indicator so that my my uh, flies are, are drag free again in, in the strike zone, I've got to lift that strike indicator up off the water and bring it slightly upstream of its original position, which allows the flies to swing out um, and, and lower in the water column. When I lower that strike indicator back on the water, my flies have gotten ahead of or at least abreast of that strike indicator and now um, they're back where they belong so that, those are all things that we can do even with with uh, plastic flotation devices when we're, when we have to use those we could still uh, we can still um, get the job done yeah and what are your thoughts kind of on you know like i know some people uh will keep the bunny ears on their ciders right or they'll um They'll hit knots with like uh, UV resin so that it glows to give people a little bit more visual feedback. Do you like those? Do you think they're necessary? Sometimes. Yeah, I, I don't think bunny ears are really um, helpful to me when I'm vertical and my cider's out of the water. Where I think bunny ears can be really, really helpful is if I'm doing a long line nymphing technique and I've got real small flies and, and real light leaders and I know I've got to float that cider for a while. Um, it, that's where I think bunny ears can be really helpful because they can it's like a little antenna then in your leader that can register those real subtle strikes that are so hard to pick up in slow water. Again, it's those strikes that are the hardest to pick up. Fast water strikes are easy. That trout, you, you will usually um, grab that fly and duck for cover, whether it's up in the water column or to the side. And those strikes usually you can feel them or they're they're more visually apparent. The slower water strikes are the ones that are tough because that trout could just kind of float with that fly in slow water, knowing again the strike zone could be from top to bottom in slower water, and they'll just come up, float next to that fly, and they could inhale it by flaring the gills, and they can cough it out just as fast. And so those are the tough strikes to detect. That's where Every little uh, cheat that you can use, bunny ears or the New Zealand style indicators, or I know people that put two New Zealand style indicators out or two tiny pieces of yarn or tiny pieces of foam. Um, because those strikes can be that hard to pick up because it, you think about it at, at 40 feet away or 30 feet away. If, if I just have a single uh, reference uh, and that moves or slows slightly, I can't always pick that up. But if I have a second um, visual aid out there, whether it's two New Zealands or two sets of, of uh, foam or whatever it is, um, I can see one move apart from the other would be a subtle strike. Or I can see him turn in the water where a trout has picked up your fly and gone sideways with it. Yeah, absolutely. And, uh, you know, folks, we really appreciate all the questions. And also, you know, we really should uh, should thank our friends at Temple Fork Outfitters and SA for providing the the great prizes, as well as you, Jason. You've got a someone, some lucky winner is going to get a signed copy of your Nymph Masters book. Oh, I'm excited. You bet. And and I want to add my gratitude to um, to TFO and Scientific Anglers. These companies are are just so um, great about supporting educational programs within our sport. And they're also um, so responsive to providing uh, what anglers need um, on the rivers or streams in new products, good products, and new ideas. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so just to refresh everyone, I know everyone's sitting there waiting, like they're listening to the radio to see if their question uh, or their song gets played. Um, So what we did is we took all of the people that submitted questions, and I put those in the Google number generator. And uh, that person, the winner, will get a signed copy of Jason's book. And I'll take care of the logistics of connecting you with Jason. And you you can get your book personalized exactly the way you want it. And then everyone's question that uh, when that we actually read or used in the episode tonight, uh, we're entering a drawing for a TFO stealth rod and reel loaded with a uh, SA Euro nymphing line. And so we did the exact same thing with the uh, with the Google number generator. We've got two winners, and I'll reach out to you, or if you're here and you're eager, you can reach out to me. And so, uh, Jason, the the book winner is Howie Fisher. So uh, congratulations, Howie. We'll be in touch. And then the Super lucky winner of the rod and reel combo is Patrick Stevens. So congratulations, Patrick. Wow. That's awesome. You know, congratulations guys. It's, it's, uh, it's going to be fun getting that in the mail. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll, I'll reach out to each of you. If you, if I, if you're eager, feel free to reach out to me and, um, you know, Jason has been a lot of fun working on this series with you. We'll have to f- come up with a, uh, another project to work on together. <laughs> That's great. I've enjoyed it, Marvin, and it's always fun to talk about nymph fishing. Yeah, we maybe we can do uh, a cocktail of the month. We can come up with different ways to make Moscow mules. <laughs> that works. So we'll have to get uh, articulate fly uh, Moscow mule mugs. That's what I'll have to show up with in the next fly fishing show. Well, that'll keep you out of trouble, I think, next time I ask you. Fair enough. Well, listen, folks, uh, I hope you guys have found this useful you know, feel free to send me any feedback and, uh, you know, get out there and catch a few, put all this stuff to work and catch a few fish. Tight lines, everybody. Tight lines, Jason. Thanks, Marvin. Tight lines. Tight lines.